Alzheimer's, the third leading cause of death in the United States. What can you do to protect yourself from it? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is a physician, although he, if you look at his credentials, you think he was a physician, MD, PhD, but he graduated from Duke University and he is now serving as the director of neurodegenerative disease research at the uh, UCLA School of Medicine. And uh, interestingly, he also went to Caltech and worked at MIT, two of the best engineering schools in the world, and has a profoundly deep and passionate interest in math, which is, of course, one of the most foundational basic sciences. And he's done some incredible research. He's probably one of the most credible and leading researchers in Alzheimer's that I'm aware of. And, you know, it's just... I'm just so privileged to have him to discuss some of the, the research findings he's come up with that can have an enormous impact on you. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Dr. McCullough. Great to be here. All right. So uh, I guess we could start with uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the fact that Alzheimer is the third leading cause of death in the United States, and many people aren't aware of that. It, it seems to uh, be behind uh heart disease and cancer, and those may flip at some point in the future. But right. I'm wondering if you could, just so we could set the stage and then talk into the number of the brilliant molecular mechanisms that you've been able to identify and programs you've put together to help treat it. But I'm wondering if you could set the stage for your projections as to the impact that this disease process is going to have in the next generation or so. Right. And so you hear things that sound like hyperbole when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, but unfortunately, they're not. So it's currently costing the United States over $220 billion annually. It is a trillion-dollar global health problem. As you indicated, it's on the rise. It's, it was the sixth leading cause of death, which was commonly quoted. Now it has become the third leading cause of death in the United States. Um, this is something that's set to bankrupt Medicare. Uh, it, uh, it, is, it strikes about 15% of the population, so incredibly common. And in fact, unfortunately, you have the pathophysiology of the disease for about 20 years before the diagnosis is made. So many of us are walking around with early Alzheimer's without realizing it. A huge, huge problem on the rise, and there hasn't been any sort of a monotherapy a therapeutic approach that has worked for this terrible illness. But do you, do you think that, you know, some experts are projecting that it's going to impact up to half of us in the next generation. I'm wondering if you would agree with that assessment or do you have different uh, ideas as to what the impact is going to be, unless something radically changes, I don't think it will. That's a good point. Uh, it may well, because we know that if you simply look at the age-related uh, incidents, then you're, you're looking at by the time you reach 85, so the prevalence increases, so that by the time you are reaching 85, uh, nearly half of the people are affected. And of course, it, it depends critically on your genetic background. So for the people who are ApoE4 positive, who carry the allele for, uh, for ApoE Epsilon 4, uh, then, uh, th then there are about 75 million Americans who have a single copy of ApoE4. They are at about 30% lifetime risk. Those with two copies are at over 50% lifetime risk. So the majority of those people, and there are 7 million of them in the U.S., will develop this disease if we don't do something to prevent it. Yeah, so, so no, don't get alarmed with those statistics, folks, because there's a lot that you can do, and we're going to dive deep into the molecular biology. But before we do that, I want to really uh, acknowledge and help Dr. Bredesen 
uh, expand on how he came to this field because, folks, he is a true anomaly. It is the rare exceptional physician, MD, he's an MD by training, that comes out on the other side embracing functional medicine. And he happened to do it independently outside of any functional medicine training because there are training programs that do that. So uh, interestingly, he started his journey into Alzheimer's at Caltech on his freshman year, but it's a really interesting story. So I'll let him share it. Sure. So we have been interested. I, I worked for uh, Dr. Stanley Prusner, who won the Nobel Prize in 1997 for discovering prions. And when I set up my own laboratory in 1989, the idea was we wanted to understand the fundamental nature of neurodegeneration. What drives it? There's so much interesting information about what drives cancer, but there had not been simple models that you could actually use in the laboratory to study what drives neurodegeneration. So we've spent 28 years in the lab now studying this phenomenon of neurodegeneration. And we were not aware of the brilliant work of, uh, of uh, Jeffrey Bland and David Jones and Mark Hyman and David Perlmutter and all of their colleagues in functional medicine. So we really came to this from a very different background. What we discovered is that the, the central molecule involved with Alzheimer's disease. Of course, we also study the amyloid of Alzheimer's, but the surprise was this thing, of course, comes from a precursor, amyloid precursor protein of APP or APP. We discovered a new kind of receptor back in 1993, and we called these dependence receptors. And these are receptors that actually create states of dependence on trophic factors, on hormones, on things like that. If they don't get the appropriate factors, then they induce programmed cell death, they induce neurite withdrawal and things like that. So the surprise was that APP actually looks like a dependence receptor. So we started looking at this further, and what it turned out to be is that APP actually is an integrating. In other words, it's not just waiting for one molecule. It is summing over many different things. So whether it is going to give you the signals that, that indicate that you should grow forward, make synapses, keep memories, or the opposite, pullback, forgetting, activation of programmed cell death, depends on a whole set of signals. And these include estradiol, progesterone, pregnenolone, free T3, NF-kappa B, inflammation. And we realize this is what the epidemiologists have been telling us. And this is, in fact, what functional medicine does. So what happens is you can't, if you look at the molecules involved, you can't escape the conclusion that a functional medicine approach is an optimal approach. This in no way says that you shouldn't develop drugs as well, but you want to test the drugs on a background of the appropriate program. So we tell the patients, imagine you have 36 holes in your roof, because we initially identified 36 different mechanisms involved. If you patch one hole, that's not going to help you that much. You want to patch all the holes. Now, a drug typically patches one hole. So you're going to test your drug. Fine. Patch the other 35 as well. Yeah. So <clears throat> preaching to the choir here with the drugs, uh, I'm not a fan of virtually any drug. Uh, there's rarely, an, I mean, it's there's some, I'm sure, because absolutes are rarely ever true. But uh, And most of the people watching us are not drug fans. So that's not an issue. But your research, you, you essentially determined that there were essentially three subtypes of Alzheimer's. Uh, and two of them are actually not really an illness. They're a strategic programming downsize of the synaptic density. 
uh, based on a mismatch of a number of different inputs, but essentially not illnesses. And if, it, if, you, if you implement many of the strategies that you're recommending, you can reverse those. So what I'm not clear of, so there's, so not the, but the point is not to get too distressed if you come down with signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's, because there's a good chance it may not be Alzheimer's. You have to look at these other subtypes. So can you elaborate on that and, and also provide us with the approximate percentage in each of those? Sure. So what we found when we, we realized that all these different inputs actually affect a critical balance, and you can think about it exactly the way you do, uh, you can think about osteoporosis. You've got osteoblastic activity, you've got osteoclastic activity, and it's an imbalance in those two over your life that leads to osteoporosis. What we're seeing is no different. We realize this is synaptoporosis. There is, there is synaptoblastic activity, and there are dozens of signals that feed into synaptoblastic activity. Sorry, let me interrupt you there for a minute, because some of our viewers will, are not medical professionals. And actually, many, most of them aren't. So the synapse, maybe you can expand on that so they'll know what we're talking about. Right. So in your brain, the critical power you have to make decisions and to speak and to learn and all this has to do with the connections between the brain cells. So you have 100 billion neurons, that's 10 to the 11th neurons in your brain, and each one has, on average, nearly 10,000 connections, just like the connections you have with your various listeners and with your various colleagues and so forth. And these are critical for the interactions, storing memory, making decisions, all these sorts of things. You can't do anything without these. And these connections are called synapses. And so when you get Alzheimer's, you lose initially the function of the synapse and ultimately the structure of the synapse and ultimately the cells themselves actually die away. So you have this amazing computer inside your skull that has nearly one quadrillion connections. And what we discovered is that there are active signals in which the pre and post synaptic elements, literally the, the two pieces come and talk to each other. In fact, this has been likened to a marriage. These, there, there's a courtship there's a commitment. These things interact with each other. And then there, of course, there is functional and dysfunctional interaction. Um, they talk to each other in a positive way. They talk to each other in a negative way. And unfortunately, there can be divorce. So you can actually lose these synapses. And in Alzheimer's, what we discovered is that everybody with Alzheimer's is on the wrong side of the balance. In other words, their synaptoblastic activity is too low and or their synaptoclastic activity is too high. So we want to go after all of those different things. Now, when we then started to measure these, we realized, you know, you've got to measure things that aren't measured in clinical practice. And this has been the big problem. People say that Alzheimer's disease is mysterious. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's because they have not looked at these larger data sets. And going back to what you said earlier, I mean, this is part of the new medicine. We need much larger data sets. We have a massive complexity gap right now. We're dealing with extremely complex organisms ourselves, and yet we are not looking at the data that we need to be able to make the critical decisions about those organisms. I'm wondering, uh, with the uh, rapid development of uh, deep learning and artificial intelligence, if you are establishing any collaboration with these groups to elaborate these uh, massive data sets. Exactly. Yes. In fact, we've we've talked to uh, various groups, um, IBM Watson, 
uh, mm-hmm. and a group at Amazon, uh, of course, Institute for Systems Biology, led by Lee Hood and, and Nathan Price. Um, and they are as well interested in larger data sets and how we can look both preemptively and, of course, uh, for reversal. So we now argue that you can, for the first time, both prevent and reverse cognitive decline. And actually, we published the first paper, as you know, that showed mm-hmm. reversal of cognitive decline. Yeah, we will definitely get into that. Yeah. So, so the, the bottom line is you need to look with larger data sets. When you do that, you can see very clearly with these larger profiles that there are subtypes. So there are people who have a predominantly inflammatory picture. We call this type one. These people have high HSCRP and IL-6 and TNF-alpha, all those sorts of things that reflect this chronic inflammatory state. And interestingly, when you activate NF-kappa B, part of inflammation, what does it do? Of course, it alters gene transcription. And and two of the genes it turns on are the beta secretase and the gamma secretase that are specifically cleave APP and drive it toward the synaptoclastic direction. So you can see a direct link between inflammation and the production of Alzheimer's disease and amyloid. Type 2, very different. And type 2 is an atrophic response. So in fact, what happens, if you want to push your APP in the direction of giving you the amyloid and giving you Alzheimer's side signaling, you can either induce inflammation or you can withdraw trophic support. So if you withdraw nerve growth factor or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, or estradiol, or testosterone, or vitamin D, and the list goes on. This is summing these inputs. It's basically functioning like your company's CEO. It's saying, do we have enough to stay in the black? If not, what's the first thing that happens in your company? You say, we're not going to hire any new employees. That's exactly the same thing that happens in your brain. Say, we're not going to add to what we already have. We're going to still be able to drive a car, speak, etc., but we will not be able to learn new things. And that's exactly a very common presentation, as you know, for Alzheimer's disease. So we call that type 2 or atrophic or cold Alzheimer's. Uh, And by the way, the Ayurvedic physicians knew about this years ago. Of course, they didn't call it Alzheimer's. This was millennia ago, Um, but they called this Vata. So this was the Vata type of dementia. Um, And then the third type is a very interesting type because it is quite different than the other two. And this is a toxic type of Alzheimer's disease. And we initially discovered this because there was a set of patients that were not responding well to improving, to reducing their inflammation and improving their, uh, their trophic status. They still wouldn't get better. And we started looking further into their histories, into their laboratory data. And what we discovered is that these are people with toxic exposure, many of them having the SERS markers that Dr. Richie Shoemaker has described, of course, although interestingly, most of them do not fit the criteria for SERS. So we had to come up with something different. They act like SERS patients with dementia. They have high TGF beta. They have high C4A. They have low MSH. They have high MMP9. They have the HLA DRDQs that are associated with biotoxin sensitivity, often the so-called dreaded HLA DRDQs. And yet, they usually do not have the pulmonary complaints, the rashes, the fibromyalgia, the, the chronic fatigue, and these sorts of things. When you treat their 
SIRS related. Uh, and, uh, and SIRS again is what is what is that? Chronic, good point. Chronic inflammatory response syndrome, as defined okay. by Dr. Shoemaker. When you treat those, then they get better. And so, and without treating them, they continue to decline. So that's type three. And I should add just that there is a type 1.5, which is in between because it has part of the type one, it's got the inflammation and part of the type two, it's got the atrophic. And of course, these are the people who have insulin resistance, which gives them the type two, and they have the inflammation associated with advanced glycation end products and things like that, so that they have some type one. So, and this is very common. And by the way, very treatable. Are, are these types generally recognized in conventional medicine and they're re referenced in the literature, those three types? They, they are, so we've, we've published a paper, uh, two papers on these types. They are not generally accepted yet. Mm -hmm. So people are still gathering small data sets and saying okay. this is a mysterious illness. I don't know where it came from. All right. In your, in your descriptive classification then, I'm wondering where the genetic one, would it be it wouldn't be toxic, but it'd be it's another just merger between type 1 and type 2. So good point. So with respect to genetics and Alzheimer's, as you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, about 95% of cases of Alzheimer's are not so-called familial Alzheimer's disease. Those are relatively uncommon. And actually, mutations in APP itself are very rare causing Alzheimer's, and they tend to be very clearly clustered in families, and they come on early. However, about two-thirds of the people who have Alzheimer's do have one or two copies of APOE4. So the, in that case, the genetics of risk for Alzheimer's um, is very important. Now, the APOE4 is, interestingly, that increases your risk for type 1, it increases your risk for type 2, but it actually seems to decrease your risk for type three, the toxin associated one, which is very interesting because as you probably saw just a few days ago in, in New York Times, there was a piece on APOE4 as being protective with respect to parasite associated dementia. And this actually was from a paper that appeared back in December. So in fact, APOE4 is protective for certain things. Um, it is a more pro-inflammatory state. So very good for dealing with things like microbes. Not so good. Again, it's a, it's a case of what's called antagonistic pleiotropy. Good for you helps give you advantages when you are young, but it is a liability with respect to chronic illness when you are older. Yeah, I first encountered your work through uh, one of the presentations you gave at STEM Talk. And uh, I was really intrigued when you talked about the APOE4 being actually protective not for Alzheimer's, but it's a useful allele to have. It's a, it's a very powerful strate strategy for your body to stay alive. And what does it do? At least relating to what you said, because I never was aware of this before, but it helps you survive during times of low food, which is not the case for most of us. So it occurred to me, and I want you obviously to expand on this, that if you've got this and you can determine it, obviously we can do genetic testing inexpensively, then to me, this would be a strong clinical indication that you absolutely need to do intermittent fasting or regular fasting on a regular basis, unless you want to pre-expose yourself or predispose yourself to this illness. This is absolutely the case. And I think it's a very interesting point. APOE is such a remarkably interesting gene. Um, the APOE4 was the primordial gene that appeared between five and seven million years ago. 
Uh, if you look at chimps, for example, they do not have the same APOE as the hominids. So this seems to have appeared with the hominid evolution. And for 96% of all of evolution of hominids, we've all been APOE4 double positive. So homozygotes, <laughs> the very thing that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. Oh, gosh. It's only been the last 4% of our evolution APOE3 appeared 220,000 years ago. APOE2 appeared 80,000 years ago. And very interestingly, APOE4 prepares you to change niches. So when you when we moved from in the trees, from our boreal ancestors, to walking on the savanna, stepping on dung, puncturing our feet, eating raw meat with, filled with microbes, <clears throat> we needed a pro-inflammatory gene. And in fact, if you look at the genes that are different between simians and hominids, in fact, a surprising number of these are pro-inflammatory. And as you indicated, it also allows you to eat fat, absorb it better, and go longer without eating. So if you take people who are APOE4 positive and negative and starve them, the ones who are negative will tend to die earlier. Therefore, it's not that it's better or worse. It's different. Mm -hmm. It gives you some advantages. It gives you some disadvantages. And therefore, you can learn to live your life slightly differently that is, that is of advantage to you. And my argument is nobody, if, if you really do the right things, Alzheimer's disease should be a very, very rare illness. Couldn't agree more. Now, you put together something called the MEN protocol, which is metabolic enhancement of neurodegeneration. And I, I, you may not be aware, but I wrote a book this year called Fat for Fuel that really focuses on something called MMT or might, what I call mitochondrial, I made it up, mitochondrial metabolic therapy, but I think they're pretty similar processes. So I'm wondering, you know, you've identified dozens, maybe four dozen or more variables that can really have a significant influence on this disease. And I'm wondering if you think the common pathway, the mechanism is through, through essentially mitochondrial dysfunction, establishing well, some disruption of mitochondria. So no question mitochondria play an important role. But again, as you indicated, and by the way, my wife just finished reading your book. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm honored. And I am reading, and she's, she's a family practice physician, and actually has taught me a lot about functional medicine. Oh, great. Uh, she told me 25 years ago when we were in the lab, you know, whatever you guys find is going to have something to do with diet, exercise, sleep, stress, and, and obviously, <laughs> and I told her, absolutely not. I'm a molecular biologist. We're going to have one domain of one little molecule that's going to do, you know, do everything. And so that's why you're such an anomaly because I should have listened to her. I should have listened well, to no, her. No, no, but you, but you follow the facts and so many people, and I think it's because of pride. They're just so unwilling to abandon the truth once they find it. And yeah, not, that wasn't your case. When, when you see people starting to get better from Alzheimer's disease, you cannot refute it. You just, mm -hmm. you see people improving their scores. You see people going back to work. You see them becoming part of their families again. You just can't refute what you see. And so, you're, you know, you, you can't refute this, this sort of approach. Um, and I should say, you know, it's toe in the water. These are early days. This is the beginning. But it gives us a place for the first time to start and to say, okay, now how can we optimize this? How can we get better and better and better? And, uh, you know, what's, what's really interesting, and, you know, we, I, I, we agree that certainly uh, mitochondria are huge. And, again, if you, know, if you look at There's what – There's a quadrillion of them, just as many sentences as you have. 
That's a really good point. And if you look at what changes the most between birth and death, what is senescence all about? You know, we lose some muscle mass and we lose the ability to make hormones, all these things. The argument has always been the thing that changes the most, it's five to six orders of magnitude, is mutations in, in mitochondrial DNA. That's the thing that collects the most as we age. That's where the energy is produced. That's where the, the free radicals are generated, the majority of them. So that's yeah. exactly what you'd predict. It's a huge issue. Um, and yet at the same time, as you well know, functional medicine shows you, you've got to look at this as a coordinate unit. You know, the mitochondria are working with us. They invaded us many years ago and they're our friends. Um, and, and of course, we and they can be enemies at times. So that you've got to support the whole thing. So you've got to look at the inflammatory state. You've got to look at the uh, glucose state. You've got to look at insulin resistance. One of the biggest surprises we found is that if you look at why APP is actually making this amyloid, is actually changing this, the, the synaptoclastic side, the very amyloid that we have vilified and tried to get rid of turns out to be, surprise, a protective response to three fundamentally different classes of insults. And these go along with the subtypes of Alzheimer's. If you've got inflammation going on, you are making the amyloid because, as Dr. Robert Moore and, and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard showed, it is an antimicrobial, a very effective endogenous antimicrobial. If you are decreasing your trophic factor support, as my laboratory showed years ago, APP is a dependence receptor. You are downsizing a network, which is why, as I, you mentioned earlier, uh, in that case, it's not really a disease. And by the way, I saw that you had uh, Professor Mike Mersnick, a colleague and friend. on. Oh, sure. Course, that was a number of years ago, but he was back on. And Mike says, hey, this is not a disease. You know, this is a falling apart of a system. So, uh, so you're making amyloid because you're fighting microbes, because you're under assault and you're inflamed, because you are decreased in your trophic support, insulin resistance, et cetera, or because guess what else amyloid does beautifully? It binds toxins like metals, like mercury, like copper. So it's very clear you're making this stuff to protect yourself. So it's all well and good if you want to remove it, but make sure to remove the inducer of it before you remove it. Otherwise, you're putting it yourself at risk. All right, before we jump into some of the clinical recommendations that, you, that I'd like to really delve into, because there's some that I did, haven't been, I haven't seen highlighted in your research, but I wanna jump back to the genetics and, and have your response to the conventional media's approach. I mean, 60 Minutes just re-ran a, a story that ran in November about the this uh, family, uh, I forget the name of the syndrome, but they were really high, at some and they were in Colombia, their Medellin, yes, this is the drug right. cartel, and they uh, were hoping to learn, you know, essentially identify drugs to treat it. And then when PBS does their documentary, The Tsunami of Alzheimer's, there's not a darn thing we can do about it. So, I mean, that's the conventional wisdom of the media, and, and I would assume most researchers in this field. So I wonder if you can comment on that. Absolutely. So the, the current status, as you know, is that this is a mysterious illness. Um, it can be genetic, which is rare. And that this, this family has presenilin-1 mutations. Uh, and, and so the hope is that we would use specific drugs and test these drugs to see if we can prevent it. Here's the problem. APP, as we talked about earlier, 
is like a, like a CEO, essentially. It's looking at all the inputs uh, it's from both sides, the pro and the con, and it's deciding, are we going to be able to make more memories? Are we going to have a positive synaptic plasticity? Are we going to be synaptoblastic or are we synaptoclastic? Now, in the few families that have this, they are pushed toward the synaptoclastic side from the beginning. Mm. That is not representative of what the, the over 95% of us have. We are pushed there appropriately because we ate the wrong foods. We stayed up too late. We abused ourselves in so many ways with stress. We ate the wrong things. We were exposed to all these toxins. We, we lived a Western lifestyle. We ate the standard American diet. Our hormones decreased. Those are the things that are driving our APP to produce the synaptoclastic side. In those presenilin 1 cases and in the APP mutations, um, it is not the same mechanism. And unfortunately, the mouse models that we all work with are like familial Alzheimer's, not like the sporadic Alzheimer's, which is the vast majority. Now, this is not to say that, you know, the drug cannot work. Let's hope for the best. But again, I would argue that you want to address the various things that are contributing to an appropriate response of your APP, which we ultimately call Alzheimer's disease. Okay, great. Thank you for the expansion, because I wasn't sure of the, pers the total perspective, but the 95% was, was really helpful. Um, so now I'd like to delve into some treatment strategies, and, and, and hopefully you're willing to share, unless it's proprietary, as, and we can post it on this, is your MEND variables that you look at and address and the, the actual uh, lab tests that you use to monitor, like HSCRP, vitamin D, pregnenolone, uh, you know, a whole variety of other, other factors. But... I'm not sure that you're checking for these. And even if you are, I'd like to have your comments on because as I was doing the deep dive molecular biological research for writing my book, it became very clear to me that uh, the, the name of the game is to preserve mitochondrial function. And one of the best ways to do that is re radically reduce or optimize free radical stress in the mitochondria. And one of the ways that you can do that, certainly not the only, is to give it its preferred fuel source, which I believe is... Uh, fats and more specifically ketones and ideally optimized in a cyclical fashion because if you do anything persistently it's it's likely not to be good so pulse cyclical ketosis so i'm wondering if you've looked at that are you using that strategically in your interventions or you know what your thoughts are on it absolutely um, and let me start by saying the so the original protocol we developed, um, I dubbed MEND, Metabolic Enhancement for Neurodegeneration. That is now several years out of date. Okay. Um, continued to evolve it. Yeah, that's okay. This, this is all explained in, in the book, which is coming out. Uh, oh, we'll uh, have to have you out for the book. Yeah, so the book, well, book, the book on all book. of this. And when is your book coming out? So the book is coming out from Random House. It's coming out August 22nd. Okay, I did not know that, but it's fortuitous because we'll hopefully be able to accelerate this and have this launched for your books to help your sales for that. That would be great. Thanks so much, okay. uh, Dr. McCall. I appreciate that. So, so what happens is, in, 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 so what we now call Recode. So Recode is reversal of cognitive decline. Okay, so you've changed the name. Okay. So, and so, yeah, so we've continued to evolve it. So this is an evolving strategy as we learn more. And absolutely, and as you'll see, if you, if you ever look at a recode report, so we have a computer-based algorithm that we've developed. The most important part is just what we talked about earlier and what you alluded to just a minute ago, which is to get an evaluation that looks. So the critical piece here is not to say, oh, you have Alzheimer's, we don't know why. 
the critical piece is to say, how can we leave no stone unturned? Because if we don't do something about this, this is a terminal illness. Let's look at all of the contributors to your cognitive decline. We know ahead of time that because of the cognitive decline, you have this change. If it's what we call Alzheimer's, you by definition have a change in your APP signaling with the occurrence of this amyloid. So let's look at all the things that contribute to that. And you're, you're right. Um, the, there's a lot, been a lot, of, a lot written about a free radical contribution to this. We recommend that everybody induce mild ketosis. We recommend that they get ketone meters and you stay between 0.5 and 4 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. Um, and there, there's been some interesting back and forth about whether it's better to do it with a breathalyzer or with urine. So far, as you know, measuring the beta-hydroxybutyrate seems to be the most the standard way to go. And yeah, and, but pra- pragmatically, but, the breath analyzer is the way to go. Who <laughs> wants so, to stick themselves or pay the Pay four dollars a stick. You know, I completely agree with you there. There. So, so hopefully. You know, one day we'll have an optimal way to do this that, that satisfies everybody. But for now, you're right. There's a pragmatic uh, uh, issue here. So what we do is we look through Recode. We look at all of the contributors. And so interestingly, you know, if you go to an advanced cancer center today mm-hmm. and you have a tumor, what do they do? They biopsy the tumor and they sequence the genome of the entire, t- uh, the entire genome of the tumor. They sequence your entire genome. They compare them and they say, why did this person get this tumor? What are the things driving? What we do is exactly the same thing. The difference is we don't have a tumor to biopsy, of course. So what we do then is we look at 150 different variables right now, which include biochemistry, genetics, historical imaging. And this gives us a very good look at what is actually driving. So we take these 150 variables, we feed them through the algorithm, and it will then generate for you what percentage of each subtype do you have? Because in fact, most people aren't pure type 1 or pure type 1.5, pure type 2, etc. Most people have a dominant one, but then contributions from some of the others. So then, yes, of course, after you can tell, okay, here's what this person should should uh, do, it's different for each person. It's personalized. So if you have insulin resistance, which many people do, as you know very well, you want to address your insulin resistance. You want to create insulin sensitivity. You want to decrease your inflammation. You want to remove the source of the pro-inflammatory effect. You want to remove toxins. And as you know, Dr. Joe Pizzorno has done a great job with looking at all these different toxins that we are exposed to. You know, It is indeed a toxic world in which we live. And we need to enhance the ability to evaluate these, identify them, and remove them ultimately. So this is a fundamentally different way for looking at what's causing this. And as you indicated, there's a tremendous amount you can do. We recommend that everybody over the age of 45 get what we call a cognoscopy. We all know you're supposed to get a colonoscopy when you turn 50. (laughs) If you're over 45, think about getting a cognoscopy. It's very simple. You know, you're gonna look at these different things in your blood. You're gonna look at your genetics. You're gonna look at your function. You can do quick online uh, screening from groups like Dr. Mersnick's uh, uh, positive mm-hmm. so in Brain HQ, and there are other ways to do, you know, cog state and you know many different things of these to look at your status, and then get on the appropriate program for prevention. And if you've already started to be symptomatic, get on an re- appropriate program for reversal. The earlier, the better. And as you alluded to, yes, it includes diet, and and we absolutely suggest mild ketosis, mostly plant based. 
Uh, well, the diet we use is called Keto Flex 12-3. And I want to uh, thank uh, Julie Gregory and my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen, for the tremendous amount of work that they've done um, on that particular Keto Flex 12-3 uh, diet, optimizing it, um, and in part based on your principles. So um, this is, you know, this is critical. Um, exercise, increasing your BDNF. And there are, of course, new ways to do this, such as those so-called whole coffee fruit extract um, that actually David Perlmutter uh, first introduced me to. Um, and in other ways, stress is critical. Sleep is one of the most ignored things that is absolutely critical for your cognitive function. And then there's a whole host. So you have a very large armamentarium. You need the appropriate magnesium levels. You need the appropriate vitamin D levels. And these are optimal. So I always tell the patients, uh, we're going to treat you now like a competitive athlete. What you're doing is not working. You are slipping into Alzheimer's. So we want to optimize all these things. And when you do that, the effects are absolutely striking. And people, you know, we see people, as I said, go back to work. And one person said, I've allowed myself to talk to my grandchildren once again about the future because I'd had to stop doing that. Uh, one person went from third percentile to the 84th percentile in his cognitive testing. Another person you know, increased hippocampal volume dramatically. Um, so these are unprecedented effects because we are addressing the specific items that are actually causing the cognitive decline. Terrific. So just a slight disagreement with some of your analogies uh, with respect to what conventional medicine does, not your viewpoint of them, but, you know, they recommend they do this uh, genetic sequencing of the tumors. And if you know, one of my heroes is Dr. Tom Seafried, who's wrote the book, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer, and right. he would strongly disagree with that because it's it's yes, there's genetic damage, no question, but it says mm -hmm. it's a secondary downstream side effect from the metabolic derangement and the damage to the mitochondria. And then the uh, colonoscopy is like, there are so many problems with that. It's, yeah. you know, especially the disinfectant they're using, the glutaraldehyde, and, you right. know, it's, it's causing a lot instead of paracetamol. So it's some, some, some minor issues. But they, they, I should they, say, we don't, we don't use any uh, glutaraldehyde in our cognoscopy. Just good, good. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know. Uh, the other thing on the ketosis, it, I don't know if you're recommending or incorporating to your program, but I learned from really personal experience and uh, lots of experience from others that it really can't be continuous and that you will get good improvement initially, but then you'll start to decline. So you've got to bounce out of it like twice a week with relatively high amounts of carbs. And I think this may go into one of the other components. I'm not sure if you address it with your specific dietary recommendations, but there's no question in my mind that the microbiome is, is intimately related here. And I think that's part of the reason why the cyclical ketosis works is that it feeds them so well and it produces these short chain fatty acids. So I'm one, and one of the things I'm looking at, well, there's a lot of things we're looking at, like molecular hydrogen production from the, the microbiome and, and certain fibers that will do it. And you know, my training is as a resident I remember, and I don't know if you, you trained in the inner city like I did, but I had a lot of patients with hepatic encephalopathy and yep. the routine, and it was probably, this was in the eighties and I don't know if I'm sure this was there now was lactulose, you know, this synthetic non-digestible yep. disaccharide that works like unbelievable. How could this thing work? But, it, you know, now I think we know the mechanism, but it produces a heck of a lot of molecular hydrogen. 
which improves brain function. So I'm, I'm wondering if you've, that's a long tangent, but I'm wondering if you've looked at any specific fibers. That's one of my passions. I want to tweak this, understand these other fight, because lactulose is a drug. It's prescription. We're the only countries yeah. in the world where it's a prescription. Almost everywhere else it's not. But there's got to be other fibers that can do similar benefits. It's a really good point. So, so just to start with the microbiome that you mentioned. So what we find is microbiome is absolutely critical, as you know, and leaky gut. One of the things that is part of a cognoscopy is to know whether you have a leaky gut. And one of the interesting things is we're finding that not only is the gut microbiome critical, but the rhinocinal microbiome. So what's going on in your nose and sinuses? Absolutely critical. And by the way, when you look at the brain of patients with Alzheimer's, you find an increase in a number of pathogens. And they, what are they? They are oral bacteria like P. gingivalis, HSV1 from your lip, molds that are coming in here from your sinuses. So this region has access to your brain. And of course, there are other things systemically like Lyme disease. Um, and then of course, changes in the gut have been associated both with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So the microbiomes are absolutely huge. And we include healing of the gut, we include probiotics and prebiotics. As far as specific fibers, we suggest, as you know, that, that it's critical that you have, as Dr. Lustig has pointed out, it's critical that you include both the soluble and the insoluble fibers. But as far as specific ones, other than the fact that it's critical to get these in your diet if you can, we have not yet recommended any specific fiber one over the other. And in fact, as far as the cyclical ketosis, we're learning this from you. So thank you for that. Um, so no well, question, ketosis helps. Well, thank you. I'm glad you uh, are in integrating that because I'm fairly confident with a very small degree of, uh, well, anyway, I'm just fairly confident that's going to be correct. Now, I'm curious, personally, a, a physician, uh, Mary Newport, uh, husband passed from, from Alzheimer's and is, right. I'm sure you're aware, and she used a lot of, uh, coconut oil the meantime, in the beginning, and then it eventually switched over to MCT oil, and then exogenous ketones produced by Dr. Veach. Unfortunately, it was a little bit too late at the last minute, but I'm wondering if in your program, if there's a place for exogenous ketones, especially the uh, ketone esters, uh, which are more expensive in, in severe cases if you're integrating that to the program. It's a great question. Um, it's something we've been looking into. Um, in general, we have used a combination of uh, the specific diet, specific fasting periods, much like the fasting periods you described. So that's that's the origin of the 12-3 part of KetoFlex 12-3. It's a minimum of 12 hours. Do you, excuse me interrupting, but do you increase that or make it mandatory if they're APOE4 positive? Yes. If we're if they're APOE4 positive, we recommend 14 to 16 hours instead of the minimum of 12. Interesting. And what's, so, your, what's your best recommendation to, to for a screening test? Is it uh, screening test for what? For the APOE4, is it 23 Oh, yeah. There are a number of things you can do. 23andMe is fine. 23andMe will report uh, about 85% of the time. They don't always, they're not always able to get your APOE status uh, from a sample, but it's okay. relatively uh, inexpensive to do it that way. There are now many other groups that do. Okay, good. Uh, so that, that's certainly reason, very reasonable to do. Um, so, so we do, you know, report, uh, you know, we do look at, uh, specific, you know, fasting periods. And there is, yes, uh, there is absolutely a difference uh, about whether you have APOE4. So you are, again, you are a different organism. One of the things that we discovered and published um, was that APOE does something that hadn't been recognized before. 
ApoE, as you know, is a fat-carrying molecule. So it's a little bit like a fat bucket. It's a little bit like your butcher. It carries around the fat. What the heck does that have to do with Alzheimer's disease? And so we started looking at this now eight years ago, looking at why do you start with ApoE4 and end up with Alzheimer's? What's in the black box in the middle? And it turned out surprisingly that ApoE actually enters the nucleus. It binds to the promoters of 1,700 different genes. So it literally reprograms your cell toward a more pro-inflammatory state. And so what's, and in fact, if you look at the groups of genes, it, you couldn't tell a better story about Alzheimer's. It has, it binds to things related to neurotrophic support, synaptic withdrawal, all these sorts of things uh, that we talked about earlier. So ApoE has a big impact. Great. Now I've got two last interventions that I suspect you aren't doing, but if you aren't, I would encourage you to look into them. And one is based on the work of uh, Michael Hamblin, is a PhD out at Harvard and uh, really an expert in photobiomodulation where he uses near-infrared light and actually red, so about 660 nanometers and 830 or so, somewhere in that range. And Lou Lim is an ND out of uh, Canada, I think Toronto, and he's developed a device called the Neural Bilight Neuro, actually, uh, which essentially uh, are LEDs at these frequencies, mostly the infrared, near infrared, and they provide like 20 minutes a day, and it just had unbelievable results. And it would seem it's just it's near infrared light, so the toxicity or side effects right. are pretty minimal. So I'm wondering if right. you've looked at right. that or are planning to integrate that into the program. Absolutely. So I'm I'm aware of the work. Um, very interesting work, uh, and you know we're looking into it as, as I'm sure many others are. Um, I think we'll know. We'll have some data coming up. Yeah, you, you've got the parameters to guide it and measure it. Absolutely. So one of the big issues has been how do you look at a coordinate system? The, mm -hmm. Of course, the classic way, and, and by the way, this all started because we tried to do the first trial for pre-Alzheimer's, so-called MCI, back in 2011, which had all these different pieces to it. And the, uh, the institutional review boards, both public and private, turned us down because they said you have to test one variable at a time. Well, unfortunately, that's not the way these chronic complex illnesses work. But a way forward is you start with a specific part of your plan. It might take 10 things, 15, 20. Get to a plateau, and then you can add and subtract. Once you have a plateau, you can say, okay, if I add infrared light, does that help? If I subtract something, does that hurt? So then you actually have a way to go. When you start with nothing, so-called floor effect, you don't know if you're having an effect that you can't measure yet. So you need to get to a dynamic range so that you can actually see changes with single variables. Oh, good. I'm glad you're interested in that. And the, the last point I wanted to bring up was one that I'm sure you're aware of, but you may not be aware of the molecular mechanism because uh, it was just published a few years ago, and that is EMF. And we, we you know, I, it, and I just, I've known about it for a long time, but never realized the relative importance of it as being perhaps maybe the most pernicious toxin of all uh, because of the, the exponential exposure that we continue to have. Uh, especially with 5G implementation in, in the next two years. So the, are, are you familiar with Dr. Martin Paul's work, P-A-L-L? -L? I'm familiar with the, the EMF issues. So, so when we look at people, we look at biotoxins, we look mm -hmm. at chemotoxins, and then, of course, physical toxins. Okay. Uh, and EMFs, critical. Yeah, so, but his work has to do with the voltage-gated calcium channels. Uh, are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay, good. So, you know, it ultimately results in excessive free radicals through the introduction of calcium and 
nitric oxide and superoxide forming peroxynitrate and then hydroxyl free radicals. So it would seem that if you could mitigate against that, and I think the first step, like in anything, any strategy or disease treatment program is prevention, is to get a metered and go around your house. I've, I've recommended this to a few physicians. They've gotten the meters and every single one of them, including myself, has found no less than three hidden sources of BMF that were massive in their home and they were completely unaware of. So it's not, it's you can intellectually understand it, but when you have a meter and you go around, that makes a big difference. So minimizing that, then also looking at other, I mean, there's going to be some EMF exposure you're just not able to mitigate because it's a yeah. certain threshold level. But if in fact the generation, the, the, the EMF impact you, impacts the cells and the cell damage. Oh, and the other the reason why it's so important in Alzheimer's is these voltage-gated calcium channels, the highest density is in the brain tissue. That's of all, any tissue in the body, it's in the brain. So that was exactly which it's exactly the tissue you'd expect to deteriorate rapidly from exposure. But one of the, 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 the Dr. Paul figured this out by reviewing these studies, and actually they, they were mostly uh, in vitro studies and some animal studies, but they used calcium channel blockers. And when they were on calcium channel blockers and they exposed these cells to EMS, they didn't have the side effects. So obviously I'm not a big drug fan, but magnesium could be a strategy. And then also perhaps using molecular hydrogen to mitigate it selectively against those hydroxyl free radicals. Well, it's interesting. You know, there's already been a study um, published by Dr. Song Lu from MIT, and actually now his, his laboratory is back in China, uh, and I've discussed this work with him. Um, so his, his uh, using mm -hmm. magnesium-3 and 8 has shown improved cognition. As you indicated, there are with, with Alzheimer's? with cognitive decline. These people don't necessarily have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, but they were people with cognitive decline. And it may, well, there's other reasons it may work, but it's interesting yeah. that it may be blocking the, or, or essentially blocking those calcium channels. Voltage it's calcium possible. Channels. And of course, sodium channels also critical. And of course, levy is a drug that's now being evaluated uh, because of sodium channel uh, activity. And because of the fact that uh, many people will have sub-threshold uh, EEG activity. So you're having essentially electrical seizures without actual tonic-clonic seizures. So in fact, there is, as you indicated, there is abnormal electrical activity and associated channel alterations in the brain of people with cognitive decline. Terrific. So uh, it, do you have a resource that we could link to that has a list of all these variables? Because I've listened to a number of your presentations, but right. I've, and, and I've read a number of your papers, but there's never list. I could never find a complete list. Or is it right. in your book? In the name so, of your it's, book so, so the book goes through this completely okay, uh, the background of it. And, and so the book has actually been named by uh, Random House, uh, The End of Alzheimer's. And I have to say, I, I sent 10 different titles. <laughs> like didn't like any of my titles. Uh, they did their, um, quote, market research and came up with the end of Alzheimer's. I, my concern, of course, is the end of poverty, the end of hunger, the end of sure, war. Sure, what sure, does sure. It mean? But the hope is, you know, all working together, we can really make a major impact uh, uh, and reduce this. It, as I said, it should be a rare illness. That is the truth. It should be a rare illness if we do the right things, if everybody gets the appropriate cognoscopy. So this will come out uh, August 22nd from Random House Avery. Okay, good. Uh, and this goes through all the different evaluation, all the different. Good. Perfect. And that, that's exactly the solution because that, I really did need to be put in one place. In fact, when I was reviewing your material, I said, why didn't you write a book? Yeah. Is, is, this, your first, is this your first book? 
This is the first one about this. We we know we wrote something about non-apoptotic cell death that you may okay, not yeah. have read. I think it's going to be a seven copies or something. <laughs> you know, other than my mother, there weren't that many people that bought that one. Sure. Well, with respect to the title that the publisher has assigned to your book, let me share something about my first book, which was the No Grain Diet, and I abhorred the title. Absolutely abhorred it. Uh, and uh, regretted that I relented to letting them use that as a title until, up until a few years ago. And then I come full circle and I thought that probably is a really good strategy. And, that, and that's actually another point I want to discuss because I don't know if you've integrated this brilliant clinician's work into your, strat, your program, but if you haven't, I would highly encourage you to do it. And that's Dr. Stephen Gundry. He wrote the book, The Plant Paradox. I'm and also reading that right now. It's actually okay. sitting, it's sitting about five feet from me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And the yep. lectins, they're going to yep. cause inflammation, which is the the, the first the type, type first subtype, I guess, of the, right. your, your classification. So yeah, that, and I, I hadn't read it. I was aware of lectins, but never knew the importance when I wrote my book. Otherwise it would have been in there. So yeah. uh, I suspect it's not in your book because you didn't just start reading it out too. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, I had actually read an advanced copy of Stephen's book, but I okay. didn't put it in because I didn't know when his was going to come out. And I didn't want to be able to, I didn't want to say something. This is, you know, his discussion. I think he does a great job with oh, it. I should just add, with respect to the title issue, you know, no question. Random House knows titles of books far, far better than I do. Um, so I yield to their greater knowledge and experience in this area. But, but I, I think it may be true. You know, in, in, in 2004, when I wrote my book, The No Grain Diet, it was a bit controversial. But now it's becoming really clear. So that's why I'm happy with it. And, I, and I've really believed that in, in a decade or two, as, as the epidemic continues to increase until people, a significant number tend to believe and incorporate the recommendations that you and I are put, putting out there that we, it can, I mean, these are the, these are the answers. This is the answer. And it's, and it's not just the answer for Alzheimer's because I'm confident that the same diagnostic strategy intervention that you use for Alzheimer's is good for just about every other chronic degenerative disease, including cancer and heart disease. Well, and again, looking at what's actually causing, I mean, this is the difference between 20th century medicine that asks what, what is the diagnosis and 21st century medicine that asks why, what are all the contributors, whether it's cognitive decline, whether it's arthritis, whether it's type 2 diabetes? You want to look. You want to look under the hood at all the things, and then you want to alter those. Just as you're saying, you alter them with things like your diet. Well, this is great. I mean, you've done a wonderful job on that, and uh, we will definitely encourage I – mean, I wish I would have had the book before I interviewed you, but it didn't really. I, I mean, your work is out there, and you know it's definitely possible to get the the summary of it. But it'd be nice to have the details that you're going to discuss in the book. Yeah, thank so, you. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, or elaborate on, or emphasize? Well, just that you know, I think we are all in the middle of a revolution. I think that you and your listeners know this very, very well. Um, this is a major change in medicine, certainly very different than what I was taught back in the 1970s in medical school. Um, so, you know, we are now looking uh, at how the human organism actually works, and we are now able for the first time to do essentially what Jonathan Wright calls human biochemistry. Um, and, it, you know, drugs may, may or may not turn out to have their place, but the bottom line is you know, we need to understand what's causing the problem. Whatever the problem that you're you know, looking at is, we are now dying, as you indicated earlier, of complex chronic illnesses like cardiovascular disease, 
uh, cancer and uh, Alzheimer's disease. So this is a real revolution in the way that we think. And my, my fervent hope is that we will see more of this in medical schools and in our universities starting to look at what is actually driving these illnesses instead of the old-fashioned approach of let's write them at next prescription. Yeah, and I'm not sure of the exact reasons that catapulted you out of the conventional 